Disruptors, a series dedicated to individuals, well, disruptors really, that are closing disparities, changing the very fabric of our nation, or just making dreams come true all from ATL. This series will cover the advocates, unsung heroes, leaders, and more in many shows that are released every month. I'm India Hayes, the founder and CEO of Mini City, a social impact tech startup that connects the homeless and homeless care providers to life critical benefits. But this series isn't about me, it's about my fellow disruptors. When the entire world is falling apart, these are the people that show up. This statement was said by Center for Civic Innovation Executive Director and Founder Rohit. Rohit was speaking about the CCI 2021 Fellows, a group of socially conscious entrepreneurs that are set to address inequality in Atlanta under the guidance and support of CCI. The fellowship is just one of the programs ran under CCI, a safe space where civic engagement has been made more accessible due to the hard work of not only Rohit, but his entire team, home of good trouble. And he just gets it, like really gets it. In 2020, I received a letter pinned in my inbox by Rohit that read, over the past 100 years of Atlanta's history, black women have been at the center of every social movement for justice and peace. From labor movements to anti-segregation protests, black women without credit put their spirits and bodies on the line for progress, often for someone else's well-being or power. Whether in 1881 or 1906 or 1960 or 2014 or 2020, black women fought and continue to fight for Atlanta to be a better version of itself. There are not enough street signs in Atlanta to rename and honor every woman of the movement, but the impact of their collective labor and love permeates through any attempts to erase individual names. Whew. Okay, so that was good. Let's leave that there and hear from Rohit now. So Rohit, how are you doing? Um, how have you been? I'm I'm as good as you can be in 2021, the extension of 2020. But I'm I'm grateful to be here with you. I'm a big fan of you and your work, so uh, it's exciting. Thank you, thank you, Rohit. I really appreciate that. So I know your like the origin story of CCI and how you guys got started, but I would love if you could just start with you know how you guys start got started for our listeners. Um, why did you embark on this journey? All that good stuff. Yeah, um, I'll keep it brief and just let you you uh, nudge on the parts that make the most sense. But I, I think um, the Center for Civic Innovation started off just like a lot of social movement building starts, which is a group of us were, were mad. Uh, and um, being mad isn't enough to, uh, to, to start a movement, um, but being mad and and optimistic and, and maybe crazy enough is a pretty uh, delightful com- uh, combination uh, for how you actually start working toward um, something of value and meaning. And um, in 2014, a number of us started to get together to say, we love our city. Uh, I mean, we were obsessed with Atlanta uh, for all it is, for all it's been, for all um, all its flaws and its good things. Uh, um, we, we love every part of it. Um, but also, uh, Atlanta was at a fork in the road uh, where it was starting to decide what kind of city it wanted to be. Um, and in 2014, while a number of the headlines were showing how Atlanta was the new hotbed for entrepreneurs and the next place and uh, the recovery city for uh, big corporations, it was also named the most unequal city in the United States, where upward mobility was stuck at 4%, um, meaning that, you know, 
your life was determined about it by where you were born and what you looked like. Um, and very little was in your control. And so we started this because this was personal. Um, and it didn't start off to become an organization. Um, it started off to become kind of a personal rallying cry uh, for people in this city who believe that this city can be better. Um, and that if we're gonna raise our kids here, um, that it should be a city that we're proud of and that we did everything possible to make it the best version of itself. And uh, I come to this work from a uh, background in doing international development work, um, really then uh, working in, in domestic policy, uh, did a stint in the Obama administration, studied public policy, um, and thought that that's what you needed in order to, to really transform cities. Um, but the truth is, is that uh, there's no book in the world, there's no professor in the world, and there's no um, external experience in the world that can help you understand a community unless you actually live in it, unless you actually are a part of it, and unless you're willing to listen to it just as much as you're willing to tell it what to do. Um, and so um, I had the opportunity to come back home. Um, and the, the last thing I'll say is that you know, a lot of people tell dreamy stories of why they come back to the cities that they love or how they got into the career paths that they did. Um, and for me, it was not, oh, you know, kid comes back home to hometown to, to solve inequality. Uh, it was my parents. Um, you know, I, I saw at, that my parents were not getting any younger uh, and that, you know, I could try to help the entire world. But right in front of me in my own family. Um, our business was hit extremely hard by the recession. Uh, my family uh, you know, struggled with their own health issues and challenges. And so there was an opportunity for me to show up for the people who I literally love the most. Um, and so it started there. Uh, that's what brought me back home, but uh, it gave me an opportunity to fall back in love with the city that, that I did call home. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for being honest and candid and transparent. You're right. People will say really dreamy statements of I want to create change. I want to yeah. do this and that. But I love that it was for family. And um, I feel like the community that you built have built is so diverse and inclusive. But I love that you were just straight up like, hey, it was also for my parents and my own yeah. network here. Yeah, um, that's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> um, so I was you know, there's so many things that I think are great about CCI. <laughs> you guys are definitely called the home of good trouble for good reason. Yep. But um, I love that, you know, CCI is jokingly called Atlanta's unofficial department of failure. Now, that's not my direct words. That is actually on your website. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> we say it. Um, but I love that, you know, and it's supposed to be an uh, unbiased platform for tough dialogue and new approaches to addressing Atlanta's you know, systematic challenges around inequality, but what are some of the toughest but most effective conversations CNN has had, or I'm sorry, not CNN, wow. <laughs> uh, um, CCI has had today. Um, I know there've been a lot and I've seen some. Yeah, um, so I think it would be helpful to just kind of break down what, what it is that CCI does. Mm -hmm. So um, CCI's work is focused on solving inequality in Atlanta uh, and to do it in three ways. One is that we have to make sure that people are informed that inequality exists in the first place. And once they are informed, that they're inspired to do something about it. Um, and we do that through educational programming. We do it through campaigns. We do it through information sharing, data, et cetera. 
Um, the second thing that uh, we are focused on is about amplifying and investing in the work that's already been happening in this city. The beauty of cities like Atlanta is that there's a long-standing history of people showing up for their communities well before any sort of nonprofit or socially-minded organization shows up. Um, communities know that these are challenges, and they are fighting uh, to the nail every day. And there are leaders in this city that exist, um, like you, um, who are saying, like, I'm not going to wait for the entire system to change. i got to make change today. And so our job is to amplify that work and to invest in it to make sure that it is seen as a valuable part of our local economy. And the third and uh, final part of our work is that you can create individual change. Um, you can change hearts and minds. You can also create organizations, um, which you know we feel, feel like we're creating organizations every generation that are trying to solve the same problem. But that's because these are systematic issues. These are systemic. They are very much built into the roots and the soil and the DNA of this, this city um, because inequality is not um, by accident, it's intentional design. And so the third part of what we do is data research and advocacy to actually look at long-standing challenges that are preventing people from being able to engage, that are um, having us look at uh, crime as a singular issue as opposed to a multifaceted one. Uh, and so we, um, in those three ways, we think that if we can start to look at inequality as something that is is something we can manage and is human-made, then we might be able to come up with the solutions that actually prevent us from having to have the next generation go through the exact same thing. And so that's what we do. And to answer your question on the most powerful conversations that we've had, um, you know, what I love about CCI is that we, um, we give the microphone to folks who are doing the work. Um, not those who have a title, not those who have something on their business card. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you're an elected official or you just got back from the farm uh, for growing food that's feeding your community, um, you have equal uh, footing, equal weight, and equal respect in any room uh, that you walk into. And that's the way cities should be. That's the way conversations should be. Um, and, and we're not unafraid to have tough conversations about the issues. Um, we're not beholden to anybody. Uh, a lot of people think, well, these organizations that get funded by all these different places and um, who knows who's telling them what. Um, no one tells us what to do, um, <laughs> aside from the people that we serve. Mm -hmm. uh, and we tell every donor, every foundation, anybody who wants to put a dime into us, that uh, we are unapologetically committed to our mission um, and to uh, honest and transparent conversations. And so we do not take restricted capital from donors or funders. Um, and so that's allowed us to have conversations with mayoral candidates, but to turn it into an improv show uh, and to really ask them tough questions on like, you know, um, what was your biggest failure? Like, what, how did you how did you fail at that? Um, and, and that's where the department of failure uh, uh, trope kind of came from. Um, we said that, you know, in, in every other sector, there is a risk tolerance and a willingness to actually make sure that we try and test things. And even if it doesn't work out perfectly, we're going to learn from it and then move forward. We actually have fancy names for other, in other sectors for what that capital and what that risk tolerance actually is. In the social sector, you're incentivized. you got to get it perfect right away. Right. You're, there is no room for trial, uh, experimentation making sure that the thing is uh, that we are actually solving something in the most effective way, taking the time that is necessary to build trust with the communities, that's considered too slow, not at scale. Um, and so we have, uh, 
we have created a consequence and almost punished uh, organizations for not being perfect in this sector. And we want it to be a place where you don't have to be perfect, but you need to be clear on the change you're trying to create, who you're trying to create it for, and in what way are you trying to create that and be willing to measure whether it's working or not. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think that is key, and I really want our listeners, whether you're an entrepreneur, a startup founder working in social impact, to really note that I do think many times there's the punitive approach to um, those that work in social impact to be perfect all all around. Um, and almost not human, right? We all burn out, we all make mistakes, and this uh, this kind of um, pressure to be perfect or to get things absolutely right and to not allow room for growth and error, I think is really damaging. Um, you, Cece also states that the landscape of social impact is many times competitive amongst organizations <laughs> that really should be partners. And yeah. I work in social impact, I see this all the time. It can be a huge, barrier and I feel like it rings true you know um, it's an environment of scarcity many times and funding and opportunity and I think CCI and your team members are really bold in the fact that you're like all right we don't have to be beholden to these donors we don't have to become a microphone for their own agenda or what they want to do we have things we want to measure and things we want to see we actually are doing the work and so I think um, for anyone listening I just want them to be really um, keen on on I know it's hard to break away from from that uh, perfectionist kind of trope um, but to, just to step away from that CCI is a great example of still thriving and working within that space and being really unafraid I, I think that like to that point the it, it's not that I, I think you know it's not that people are not perfect right mm-hmm. that's that's a no, no questions asked. It's that mm-hmm. these challenges are complex. Mm-hmm. And to expect singular, very clear, beautifully articulated answers to issues as complicated as labor or wages or poverty or hunger mm-hmm. um, is, uh, it's naive, right? And I think that we have allowed us to say, um, well, there must just be a singular app-based solution right. to this problem. <laughs> yes. And we're not going to app our way out of out of major, complex, systemic challenges. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, yes, recognizing that people are imperfect, but also um, uplifting the fact that these are complex issues that are going to require not just the answer, but the trust from the person we are creating the answer for, mm-hmm. making sure that they even want it in the first place. <laughs> yes. Like, and I think we like to do to people rather than with people, mm-hmm. which is um, a part of part of the challenge in this work. So I think, yeah, people are complicated and complex, but these issues are are really what we need to be fighting for, not fighting each other. That's it's yeah. nonsense. Yeah, yeah, I love that what you said. We try to sometimes app our way out of a problem. So many city works in, you know, um, obtaining ID and life critical benefits, government benefits for the homeless and homeless care providers. And something we're often asked is, okay, so how do, how does this work? How do you solve homelessness? Yeah, we're like, first of all, yeah. <laughs> there's so many things. We're we are a SaaS platform. Of course, we are community centered. We have been really lucky to work with you know, PhD candidates, community activists, engineers, but it's not something, uh, an, an, an issue 
for our homeless citizens where we're just trying to app it out, right? Yeah. Um, there's so many contributing factors from disparities in wage and youth being thrown out of their home for how they identify. There's so many layers to it, right? Yep. And um, we're just starting at a very foundational level around benefits access, but there's so many other layers to it. Yep. And when we kind of realize that these issues, like you said, um, come from a really... I hate to say like sour core yeah. or, or whatnot, we can really at least try or make an attempt to innovate and work within it. And not like you said, work uh, to, or solve for someone or work to them, work with them. I love yeah. that. Yeah. I love that. Um, so uh, something that, you know, some listeners might not be aware of, they might not follow you guys closely. Also, just as an aside, you're like, man, she's a super fan. So <laughs> Mini City also was a CCI, um, a part of the CCI fellowship. We were really lucky. Yep. You know, we are in 18 or so locations around Georgia, but at the time, I remember um, applying and reaching out to some of your advisors. We had no customers or a lot of groups would be like, hey, we really love this idea. How can we get it for free, which is not sustainable. And we were really struggling, but our first um, partnership and actually our very first customer at all that was paid um, that really helped us get data and measurable results was through a CCI grant. So that was uh, phenomenal. Awesome. But um, yeah. I know CCI was selected for Google's Impact Challenge in Georgia, and it was a really you know phenomenal award. Um, an award I think of 175k was given to five nonprofits pursuing big ideas to create economic opportunity and change. And there was an additional 125k up for grabs under a People's Choice Award. And I remember being so impressed and inspired because C CCI pledged to commit 100% of that capital to send and raise, to seed and raise a um, million dollars, you know, to fund and honor and value the work of black women organizers and movement builders in Atlanta. So, you know, what sparked CCI's, um, you know, invest in black women campaign? I mean, I feel like it's needed, but in your words, why do you feel like this was such a, uh, needed um, commitment and, and whatnot. Yeah, um, you know, we didn't need 2020 to recognize the fact that black women were at the center of social movement building. We didn't need a, a pandemic. We didn't need a global uprising. Since the day we opened our doors, the vast majority of our investment and our support and the community that we have built has been uh, with black women um, because if you're actually in this work, if you've actually put your feet on the ground, um, you will realize that they are the ones who are carrying the weight uh, for so many challenges in Atlanta. Um, the difference is that working with black women does not always mean that you fully understand what black women need to lead. Um, and I think where CCI has slowly learned and uh, grown as an organization um, is to not just provide programs and services um, that benefit black women, but to actually listen to black women on what they've already been doing and be an advocate, an ally, and pass the mic. Um, and I think that um, it's very easy to say those things. It's very complicated to build those things. Um, when the Google Award came out, and we were really grateful that Google has been making more investments in Georgia, um, and particularly with a focus on black founders, um, I, I think that it didn't 
we looked at the list of that particular award and who had received it before, and there just were not black women on that list. And it was just yet another straw where we said, if we keep taking capital, we are we are essentially um, we are giving permission to this type of behavior that you can come to a city like Atlanta and you can invest in black adjacent organizations, mm. but not directly into black leadership. And it is making it clearer and clearer that we just as a society view black work as riskier. Um, and that's unacceptable. It is inherently racist and discriminatory, but it's embedded into our practices. And no one just says that. They don't come and say, we are. We believe black people are riskier. They will just ask for more information from black yes. leaders. They yes. will ask you a few more questions, a little mm -hmm. more clarification there, please. Mm -hmm. Or let me get you some assistance. Or will you go through this accelerator program before I uh, am willing to give you some money? Um, and. I don't want to act like CCI has not been complicit in the same mindset. I think we've all played a role in just perpetuating this problem. And what this gave us an opportunity to do was to say, if we're going to build it, let's build this. Let's actually hand the reins over to a group of black women to build what this should be. And over the past six to eight months, uh, we've had an advisory group of black women who um, have been meeting to actually determine what is the best way, not just for the capital that we have to be, to be used differently, but how do you build better infrastructure in a city like Atlanta for capital to move better to support the work and leadership of black women? What does that need to look like? And how do you unapologetically say that and uh, put it out there? I think CCI will be a, a megaphone for that, but we are not the ones crafting that. Um, we are handing over the, the the like the podium to folks who have been in this work for a long time who know what they're talking about um, and pointing attention to them. Um, so yes, I, I'm glad we did it. I don't think we should be applauded for it. Um, mm -hmm. I think that we should expect better uh, from people who are investing capital. But if you are an organization that is benefiting off of the work of black people, it is your responsibility to ask yourself, would you even have a budget? Would you even have capital? Were it not for the people that you serve and the people that you are in community with? Mm -hmm. If the answer to that is, you are dependent on it, then you are dependent on black genius, whether you like it or not. Um, and a part of being in this work is recognizing um, why we're able to be in this work in the first place. Um, last thing I'll say on this is that all of us are trying to work ourselves out of a job. Like anybody who comes into this work and wants to stay in the social sector um, is actually doing this for the wrong reasons. I do not believe in business for social good. Um, and, and I say that very, very clearly. Um, I think that you cannot create market-based solutions to a problem that was caused by the market. Um, it doesn't make sense. So we are inherently investing and working in work that is doesn't make sense to the market. And when you conform or twist or try to get black and brown folks to build businesses out of social movements for their civil and human rights, mm -hmm. you are inherently telling them that your rights are a commodity to us, mm -hmm. that they are dependent on supply and demand, that we will supply you with civil rights if you will demand it loud enough. And we have also seen that there's you can demand as loud as you want, but the supply side never comes up. So the economic model is broken. And just like everything else, we've given subsidy to the wrong people. Um, and so 
I, I just I think people use fancy words to try to trick us out of why we got started in the first place. <laughs> yeah. But like, folks have been doing this work. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just looking for a way to amplify it, and they think maybe if capital comes my way, maybe if that big corporation starts to care about me, maybe if that foundation throws a dollar my way, I'll be able to help the community that I signed up to do this work in the first place for. Um, but it just doesn't work that way because um, the the expectations are not aligned. There is not alignment between impact and dollars in this sector. And until that exists, you will constantly be designing flawed models to solve solve major, major systemic issues. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Got so many uh, nuggets there, and I could probably talk for much, much longer. <laughs> um, but um, I, I was looking at your team, Rohit, and it's comprised almost entirely, if not predominantly, of African American women. I think this is beyond just the committee that you were just That's talking right. about. Yeah. So, and I love that CCI is not reactionary. I think at the start of 2020, I took a screenshot and sent it to my mother, um, who is a black woman that's worked for decades in social impact and other stuff. She's in a different phase of her life. Now she works within um, property and whatnot. But um, I really admire the work that she does. But I sent her the screenshot. And I was like, look at this. (laughs) Look at this. There are these flurry of statements, commitments to the black community. And I really admire that CCI, even though you're like, hey, we don't deserve this admiration. You know, this is what we're supposed to do but still i don't think you guys have been entire entirely reactionary in that sense i see all these brands groups even funding partners who all of a sudden had a major focus um and we talk about this in other episodes with different leaders that we brought as guests but it's almost like it's trending right yeah this and, and if you have been in this work you've known whether you've had family members who've been in this work you've known since probably the day you were born that these are issues that have been worked on for generations That's right, right? Yep. um they didn't just pop up because now on social media you can see it more or you know oh my gosh just this this awful time it's always been this time so anyway i say all that to say you know you are working on different initiatives surrounded and focused on black women. Um, what do you say to organizations that are releasing these statements that are uh, claiming to do this work that s- claim to struggle to hire black women or black genius? <laughs> That's ridiculous. To me. Yeah. Uh, I think it's partially rhetorical, rhetorical right? I think mm-hmm. here's, the, here's the deal about having a representative like team around you to do the work that you are set out to do is that you are able then to develop diversity beyond surface. What I mean by that is that if if you have an, if you have plenty of black and brown folks on your team, they actually want to talk about more than just being black and brown um, because then you start to see not just, a black person on my team. You get to see a black mother who, after something happens on the news, isn't as uh, overjoyed to jump into the streets and hold yard signs. Instead, is really, really fearful for her black sons. Um, you have young black uh, leaders who have come out right out of college who are now willing to put their bodies on the line, like literally saying, I am going to go out there. So if I don't come to work tomorrow, you know why. I We stopped, we, we don't track it anyway, but we stopped counting 
how many people needed to be out um, on a regular basis, our black staff that needed to be out because they were going to funerals during um, the peaks of COVID-19. We forget that just like everything else, COVID-19 discriminated based on race. Um, it did. Uh, and it has everything to do with uh, not the disease, but the infrastructure in which we invite the disease into our communities says the levees will break so for that disease to flood black communities. Mm -hmm. um, and yet there's no discrimination here. The disease affects everyone similarly. Like there's a we forget that our infrastructure is what creates race, uh, race based issues, not necessarily the issue itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that for folks who are hashtagging their way out of their responsibilities, mm -hmm. I would say, number one, spare me the campaign on on, you know, black advocacy um, and instead just pay your black employees better. Um, like look, what people want is the ability to be in control of their own lives and their own destiny. And they want to know if they get sick or something happens to them or Man, if they just want to like need to get away for a second because of the tolls and the the trauma that they have seen, do they have the actual bandwidth and and money to be able to do that? So all the money that you put into that marketing campaign, I wish you would have not done it and divided that equally among all your black uh, employees and increased their wages because we still have a wage gap based on race and based on gender. Um, the second thing is that if you are going to make a commitment. Like, make that commitment for real. Like, be transparent. Like, I think people forget when someone makes a $100 million commitment, but they have a $100 billion fund, that is a fraction of their... They were already giving that money out anyway. They just remarketed it to you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'd rather you have just paid taxes on that money so we could have the proper infrastructure to get people what they need rather than you have coming up with a glorified marketing campaign that tells me that you like black lives. Um, I think... The other, the last thing there is that communities have sniffed through this. So you better believe black and brown folks will take your money. You want to put that money out there? We're going to take it. That's great. I'm glad you put that guilt money out there. But don't think that that erases your responsibility to actually show up to this on a day-to-day -day basis. That doesn't change your labor practices. That doesn't change your HR practices. If you're having trouble finding black talent, um, that is a inherent flaw. In, in Atlanta, if you're having trouble, you are going out of your way. Yes. to not find black talent. Oh, yes. You have decided that your organization doesn't value black talent. Mm -hmm. um, I have to go out of my way to not hire uh, uh, black talent into the organization. And I hope that I work my way out of a job so that, um, you know, black uh, leaders are able to use CCI as a, as, as a platform for their work. And, you know, a lot of people ask because I'm not black. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's like, why is this brown kid talking all about black women and black people and my mom asked me this right she mm -hmm. said you know why why did you like w what is it about that that like gets you so fired up and i'm like mom like we wouldn't be here like we your experience is based on your proximity to blackness or whiteness in this country. Mm -hmm. And we have defined the negative part of that experience as blackness. Mm -hmm. And so we tell everyone to be as white as possible to, in order to survive in this country. 
And I don't think that that should be the case because there is beauty in blackness. There's beauty in my friends that I grew up with, that I like was on academic teams with and also played ball with. Um, and so I think that if you're in Atlanta, it is irresponsible to not see how your work affects black families and communities first because otherwise you have decided that the very like foundation that the city was was built on in the 1960s and 70s that you have decided that that is no longer important to us and so i'm a student of history mm -hmm. um and so it for me to do my work responsibly requires me um to be a strong advocate and i think indian people will benefit uh from from black people's success absolutely absolutely i just had to ask that because i always felt like working within the tech space you see it's extremely saturated right with uh white colleagues or white startup founders but working in the social impact space as well working with different organizations nonprofits that are serving communities in need um i see two different realms or worlds because that community or that um I guess that group that works within the nonprofit space are almost entirely black women, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, completely, right? And so it's like existing in these in these in these two separate worlds sometimes. That's what it feels like being a founder of Mini City. And many do not understand the exhaustion and sheer strain that goes into being black in the workplace. It is not our job, on top of our job, to educate our colleagues on what it means to be black or our experience. I mean, you hit it on the head. Do the research, you know. Um, even if you are a person of history, self-educate, immerse yourself, um, and then act and do accordingly. Yeah, so as right. a black child, you already have adapted a manner to survive in white spaces, right? You're taught very early on, and that does carry into adulthood. So you're right, to be the sole uh, black person, or black woman especially, I do There's a think there's a sense of um, being more comfortable too because of your your gender or how you identify and being seen as the end all be all. I yeah. get things wrong as well. There are um, layers, there's intersectionality. There are things that I'm still learning, right? I don't have all the answers on every, uh, you know, for every person of color, every experience, whether someone um, is is an immigrant or whatnot, there's so many layers to, to it. But it, it's funny how black women are seen as like, the champions, the ones who can give voice to everything. Hey, India, what does this mean? What yeah. I don't know. And also, I'm just trying to focus on this thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of there are a lot of my friends who, um, you know, are the first in their generation to have uh, first, like, you know, the 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 first of their of their parents to be able to make money for their children. And if you are black in this country and you are the first per first like generation to make money. Um, you are trying to catch up for decades and decades of that not being the case where you were literally treated as an asset, right, to someone else. Now, finally, black families have assets and we're telling them, give it all up, get into the streets. And they're like, yo, like I, I, I worked for this. That's mm -hmm. why it, it's the responsibility of not just black people to fight for their own humanity. I think that, um, it is it is silly for us to think that this is not a problem that black people created. Mm -hmm. um, we need white people to start having conversations about race and deciding what side of history they live on, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's still a flip of a coin on whether it is that you believe, um, you know, in in 
even the ability to say Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. not are more important, that they matter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a controversial statement in this country. Um, so we, it's not enough to clutch your pearls and say, well, I'm not that white person. Um, it is right. important to understand the history of what being, like every single person who is not white in this country. And if you're not a straight white male, You have had to be amended into your acceptance into this country, which means that every single person who is not a straight white male has had a sit down with their parents who have told them that they need to do something that gets them closer to society believing that they are closer to whiteness or that they are behaving in what is acceptable. and, and I think that we have internalized that. And I think finally people are starting to say, no, mm-hmm. no, we will, not, we will not be that. And you're going to have to adjust. You're going to have to get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be weird. Um, and you can fight to maintain your power, but we are breaking it down. Um, and that's scary to people because this is when you're telling someone that you will not be in control or you are not powerful – Trusting black women is not a moniker that is supposed to be about that all black women are right. What it means by trusting black women is to restore the humanity that we have taken away from leaders and human beings who are capable of making decisions with the same level of risk assessment and and you know preponderance of, of what's in front of them as a white man. Um, and I think that until we're able to do that, uh, we're going to be stuck in these cycles. It's just that's that's just where we're at. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh man, so much that we could talk on for forever. We'll have to get coffee yep. <laughs> after the, outside <laughs> yeah, yeah. of this. But yes. yeah. um, one thing you you spoke about was policy change, right? And part of getting into good trouble is policy change. And I think startup founders might greatly underestimate the impact of policy change on the work that they do. So I think about how much easier um, the work. I do within many city would be if there were certain changes made, if we had more informed equal cities. Um, and I think about your statement of working yourself out of a job. I don't want many city to exist in the manner and the way it exists forever. Yeah. That will mean that we are remaining unchanged. Systems are still in place, but also we're probably not working as efficiently. We're not listening to what's next. We're not really on the pulse of things. So, you know, an election year, you know, as a rising CCI is often at the forefront of getting more citizens engaged, informed, and active participants in election years. What are some of the work that CCI has done to prepare Georgia citizens for being civically engaged? Yeah, uh, look, elected officials want you to outsource their responsibility to startups. Like, uh, the fact that you're working on making sure that folks can get an ID to get basic human rights um, is a public policy flaw. Um, it, you you may have, and I know you would want to, exp- you'll find another thing to solve uh, after that. But the fact that that has to exist is a flaw in our system. And, and I think where s- startups, particularly in the social sector, um, are trying to what they what they kind of straddle is this line of being a business that is trying to survive as a organization that has to put food on their their like staff's plates and uh and, and make sure they can go home with health care and all of that versus actually solving the problem which is extremely hard and counterintuitive to how you raise money um because 
good advocacy requires a strong understanding of how these systems actually work. And, and frankly, these systems are not designed for you to understand how they work. Um, so what we've done is at the very micro level, so if just for the city of Atlanta, we have started to um, demystify the roles and responsibilities that exist within this city. Um, it is very important that when we're talking to uh, mayoral candidates, that we're not talking to them about the Atlanta public school system, because the two systems are completely separate from one another. Um, we also need to be careful when we're talking about health and human services uh, to make sure that we understand what's the responsibility of the county um, on those services versus what's the responsibility of the city. Um, and frankly, people don't want to have to like do that civics 101 battle. Um, but the way that government has started to become and the way that it has been uh, you know, fractured over time uh, has necessitated the public to be informed and knowledgeable about the role and responsibility that government is supposed to play for them. So we started a campaign called Vote ATL. Uh, we did it haphazardly in 2017 because we were like, no one else is talking about this. Um, we have to put ourselves out there to get people to talk about it. Fast forward to today. Um, next week, we'll be announcing a whole bunch of stuff that we're doing around uh, voter engagement. Um, but it, what we found is that uh, cities like Atlanta do not have civic infrastructure around actual engagement. So if you're a startup founder, it's actually more convenient to not engage with government. It's great to just be like, let me get government out of the way, just stay out of my way. And if I need money or I need to connect or like I need you to like, you know, do this, do me this one favor, then I'm gonna call my council member. But actually, if we had pieces of legislation that made it easier for people to get information about what was going on in their neighborhood, where there are market opportunities, um, we'd be in such a better place. Let me give you an example. Um, there is an incredible organization, um, and I don't think she'd mind me shouting her out, uh, Casey Benning, who runs uh, Helping Empower Youth uh, you know, on the West Side. She works with young kids, um, particularly in 2020, uh, when kids were selling water on the streets. Um, she started to stop her car in front of those kids and start having conversations with them about like what they were doing, what was going on. A lot of these kids were selling water um, because they were making more money than any other program or project that has been put in front of them. And what a lot of these kids need is the ability to go home, and some of them are co-parenting at home. Some of them are paying the bills at home. Um, and a lot of these kids are making you know a couple hundred bucks a, a day for being able to sell water. Now, of course, you want them to do it safely. You want them to do it in, in such a way. But instead, we started watching kids get locked up for this. It was criminal activity. I've never seen a Girl Scout in handcuffs. I've never, I'll tell you, I've never seen that, right? Um, and of course, we will say, well, look how organized they are. Look how they look. No, that's white comfort. We, mm -hmm. We've made it comfortable. Because if you're black or brown and you see kids selling water, that felt like home for me, right? Like, of course, again, you want them to be safe. You'd never want to put anybody in harm's way. Um, but we should be locking up kids for selling water. Um, and yet we had last night during a mayoral debate, uh, candidates are very openly talking about that as criminal activity and vilifying and dehumanizing these kids. What Casey has done is brought that humanity back to them and said, entrepreneurship is in these kids' DNA. Like this is who they are. They have that swag and they already branded their own uh, water bottle company and now they're selling their own water that's out there. So. I, I think that um, public policy can be informed 
by work that is happening among entrepreneurs. There should be, in my opinion, a delegation of entrepreneurs that city council meets with on a regular basis to understand and un the pulse of what are people working on in community and how can that translate into public policy. Don't make entrepreneurship entrepreneurs do your public policy work for you because otherwise we're going to make you do our entrepreneurship work as well. Uh, so um, it is. Uh, I think there's an opportunity for the two to talk to one another, mm -hmm. but they don't. And it's at the core of like what I care about is I think entrepreneurship can actually drive better public policy. I love that. I love that. Um, I'm, I'm hoping for those strides. You know, I mean, you know, more intimately or, or personally, many cities' goals and work and whatnot. But you know how much of a I know you say it, like it, it would benefit most startups to say just stay away, just yeah. go in that corner. But for us, it's almost the opposite. So I'm, Good. I'm hoping for those moments. You know, we're working we towards like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, so we'll go ahead and wrap up again. I could talk to you for such a long time, Rohit, and I've really enjoyed our um, episode with you and together. You are our official troublemaker. I think we had. Yeah. Officially, I think we had pinned you as a change maker. Rahim was like, no, change it to trouble me. <laughs> <laughs> so as the head of the Department of Failure, you know, CCI, all these wonderful things, um, are there any words you want to impart on our listeners on what it takes to be a catalyst for change or any anything you want to leave them with before we close out? Yeah. Um, don't lose hope. I think that people can confuse this work as being hopeless or being um, – you know, somehow just pessimistic. I think that embedded in in hope is an understanding of how hard it's going to be to get to the destination we're trying to get to uh, and how difficult it's going to be and how selfless it must be. Um, it means that there are times where you got to pass the baton. There are times where you have to bring others along with you. You have to uplift others so that they uplift you. Um, we we're not against each other in this work. Like, I think most people want the same things for their families and for the well-being of those who are around them. Um, and I don't think we should allow extraneous narratives to, to interrupt the like power of the collective. Because the second you fracture the collective, that's where you're able to watch individualized power rise. Um, and I think that we, if you don't see people around you, you assume that there aren't people there. But there are so many atoms of people just like in a city like Atlanta that are hoping for change. Um, and I think that people just have to find out where they're going to plug in and know that it's going to be difficult. But if you do the work honestly, you do it transparently and you do it with clarity on where it is that you're trying to go, um, I think that we can actually be the city we want to be. Atlanta is no stranger to setting a model and an example for the rest of the country. Um, every single one of those pieces of the timeline that you started this conversation with was Atlanta saying, I know that's how we do things now, but we don't have to do it that way. There's a better way where all boats can rise with the tide. And I think we have that moment again to actually be a lighthouse to the rest of the, the country and the world to say, we can build a society and a community that is beloved, um, that is um, like where we can disagree, but we can also still love each other through this. Um, I think that 
the way that that doesn't happen is if we fracture. Um, and so get into tough conversations, get into tough debates, um, and do it from a place of love and understanding. Um, and the last thing is like, you know, hate the game, not the players. Like there's like, there are some of the most beautiful and amazing people that I know in philanthropy, people who are in this work. And yeah, they're, they're imperfect, but like, we're all working in this system that is that is designed by us. Mm -hmm. So it is within our control to redesign and reimagine and have our renaissance moment for who we want to be as a society and what it is that undergirds the most important things to us as a people. Um, and so I am I'm betting high on Atlanta. Um, I love I love this city. Um, but I also uh, think it has a tremendous opportunity and a fork in the road to decide who it's going to be and for whom. Um, and and that, uh, to me, is within our control to decide. And there's an election this November, November 2nd, there's an election. Um, people need to participate in it. Mm -hmm. And then after the elections are over, they have to start showing up to the school board meeting. They have to show up to the neighborhood meeting. They got to show up to the community meetings. And they also got to show up for organizations that are fighting tooth and nail to make sure that people survive today, um, not just theoretically tomorrow. So um, I'm optimistic. I feel great, um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight um, until I can, and then I'll pass the baton. Absolutely, I love that. Thank you, Rohit, again, and. You know, not everyone has the warrior spirit. We all fight in different ways, but these are all things that we can do, right? And they're pretty easy. They're attainable. So please be present. Show up um, for the world that you want to not just, you know, survive in, but thrive in for legacies to come. So thank you, Rohit. That closes us out for this episode. We appreciate you. As always, everyone, uh, please like and follow us on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll catch you again next month. Soundtrack music by Urban Nerd Beats. Visit us at minicityatl.com and follow us on YouTube, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you heard, give us a five-star review. If you didn't, please go on about your day. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Stay safe out here, disruptors, and continue to shake the mold and close the gaps. <laughs>